In today's episode, we're finishing up our study of Mark with chapter 15, verse 42, through the end of the book, 1620. We're going to witness the aftermath of Jesus' crucifixion as it unfolds dramatically. Joseph of Arimathea courageously lays Jesus in his own tomb, yet three days later, the tomb is found empty, bewildering the women who came that morning to anoint his body. Good morning and blessed last week of Pentecost. Today is Wednesday, November 29th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota, and the program is brought to you by Lutheran Heritage Foundation. You can learn more about their translating and publishing work on their website at lhfmissions.org. We're live this morning, so feel free to call in with your comments or questions. That number is 800-730-2727. If that's not your style, you can email them to me. Uh, you can email pastorboo at gmail.com. You can also send me a Facebook message. I'll try to get your question or comment out on the air. But for now, let's welcome our guest to the program to help us finish up this book, and that is the Reverend Ryan Fairman. He's the pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Wausau, Wisconsin. Good morning, Pastor Fairman. Welcome back to the program. Well, thank you for having me on again, and I'll just tell you, and don't worry, uh, it's Wausau, Wisconsin, but they've been having that problem since Wausau Insurance was around in the past and had their ads <laughs> on TV. I think every city I've ever been to, it seems like there's four or five different ways to pronounce it. Wausau, is that how I get it? Wausau? That's correct. Not Warsaw. Oh. <laughs> Not Warsaw. Not Wausau, but Wausau. Okay, good. Yep. Well, I'm so happy to have you back on the program. I was more concerned about pronouncing your last name correctly, Fairman. Um, correct. I'm a I fair man. Right. <laughs> good. Well, I think it's fair to say that you're also an excellent guest, and I'm glad to have you on today as we finish up this book. Um, I'll tell you what, why don't we just dive right in? I think there's a lot to cover. But first, we should start in prayer, if you would lead us in that, please. Certainly. Oh, Lord Jesus, you who have done all things well, who make both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak, I pray you now that you'd lay your hands upon Pastor Boo and I to loose the string of our tongues, that we may speak plainly your saving word, and open the ears of those who listen, so that they may hear those words which belong to eternal life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, hopefully the Lord will loosen the strings on our tongue, but he needs to keep some of those strings tightly tied. He put them there for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> but I tell you what, uh, we are covering the, well, we've covered the death of Jesus. Today we move into the burial and of course, not to give anything away, the resurrection of Jesus. So it's actually mm -hmm. a, a good day to be covering the gospel of Mark, but let's start right where we left him, which is in that tomb. Yesterday, at the end of our program, we heard Jesus cry from the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he gave up his spirit, tearing the curtain of the temple from top to bottom, and of course, covering the land in darkness. The last words we got from really anybody was a, a centurion who said, truly, this man was the son of God. And that's where we ended. Anything else you want the people to be prepared with or to know before I just start reading verse 42, where Jesus is buried? Uh, no, I, I think we can just head along. And when we get to Mark 16, we can spring on them the little issue that comes up in Mark. <laughs> yes, of course. Let's start with 42 then. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, 
Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a, bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. All right, that ends chapter 15 with the burial of Jesus. But there's some significant things besides just some guy showing up and taking Jesus' body down. Um, not the least of which is the timing. Typically, it could take up to a couple of days for someone to, to expire on the cross. And yet Jesus dies over the course of just six hours. And it's probably an, a good thing because, well, the timing, they, they wanted to take him down off the cross. Explain all that to us, brother. Sure. And, and remember that the, the two that were crucified with him, we don't get that in this gospel in this way, but their legs are broken so that they too die because you asphyxiate on the cross. You, your lungs fill with fluid uh, and you can no longer breathe. It's a long, horrible kind of death besides the suffering of having nails uh, through your hands and feet. But also there's, it's, it's really at the end, you kind of drown, drown in your own phlegm. And so they want to speed this up. They break the legs so you can no longer pull yourself up and breathe. Your lungs fill up with fluid and you die. But Jesus already dies. Timing-wise, uh, there's this great Sabbath coming up, and it would be offensive to the Jews to have these bodies hanging out there. So they want to speed up the process. In Jesus's case, we have to understand that besides the torture that he received, the beatings, the whippings, and so on, all before he was put on the cross— He's bearing the sins of the world in his body. And so when I was younger, I always would read about our brothers and sisters in China or in uh, countries behind the Iron Curtain. That's an old reference for you. In, in communist lands that suffered years of torture. And I thought, how could such a short amount of time on the cross be equivalent to what our brothers and sisters have suffered? But understanding this is the Son of God, but not only is this the Son of God, but he is bearing the sins of all the world, your sins, my sins, the sins all committed, uh, and the wrath of God is poured out upon him, that he endures this long is an incredible testament to the strength that he has. And we see this viscerally and visually as Jesus, you know, is beaten and then begins to carry his own cross, but is, and I don't want to say the word unable to, but from a human perspective, he, he was struggling with it. And, and yet, you know, Simon of Cyrene picks it up, but Jesus mm -hmm. is, of course, the one who has to be hung upon it. And he does that, and he willingly does that. I think it's really important what you brought up, though, about the nature of crucifixion. You know, I... I I once heard a comedian, and it certainly wasn't in good taste, but a comedian was talking about how, well, when Jesus comes back, he's going to look everywhere, and all you're going to see is the instrument of his death. And, of course, mm -hmm. that is the utmost hope for us. But he does have a point in the sense that we often desensitize ourselves to what the cross represents. Certainly, it represents to us life and redemption, but at the same time, this comedian is correct in saying that it was an instrument of torture and death. And, and, and if things had happened in modern times, perhaps future generations would be carrying little 
little uh, electric chairs around their neck or something. And, and and so my point in saying those things is certainly not to mock what happened, but to remind people that, yeah, this is a real thing. That cross you hang around your neck was one of the most devious instruments of torture and execution ever devised. And Jesus went through that. It's a real thing. Yeah, though the bodily suffering in and of itself, as horrible as it is, it is coupled on top of with just the unimaginable we 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 just cannot imagine what the wrath of god poured out mm. physically mentally spiritually what that means but that's why he's suffering we see that in the garden when we have this kind of this bloody sweat he's 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 being crushed in a sense under the weight of the wrath of god but yeah when you talk about the uh, the electric chair uh, or maybe wearing a wearing a needle around our neck in the sense right. of the uh, lethal injection but Certainly, I think it's useful. I, I'm not against crosses, but crucifixes are useful, and we we decorate mm-hmm. those up too, uh, to really look on uh, the suffering of Christ. There's some great artwork that's like that, and then really the sign the sign of hope, which we'll see in 16, is is an empty tomb. Uh, so, but yeah, it's it's you know history has we 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 date our years from the birth of Christ. And there is this, there's this sense, too, that the death and resurrection of Christ is, is the, the end and the beginning of everything. And so while the cross is this instrument of torture, on the other hand, it is the instrument of our redemption. And so he defeats death, and now even that instrument is broken in a sense. What it was now has become a font of life. Or sometimes I've seen people talk about uh, the tree in the Garden of Eden, uh, you know, a tree of life, and now this barren tree of the cross, this cut down piece of wood, uh, becomes a tree of life for us. So, so that's why we we can look at crosses and 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 get in such a way that we forget the suffering of it. But on the other hand, certainly things have changed in a way that in history nothing else has changed like this. Yes. Oh, absolutely. And I want to highlight something you said earlier, because you said the physical suffering was just what it was, just horrible. You know, when whenever Mel Gibson came out with that Passion of the Christ movie was very graphic. There were a mm-hmm. lot of critics of the movie and critics of Christians for watching it because of the sheer amount of violence in it. And yet a lot of people defended the movie, and I think rightly so, because it was a reminder of just how gruesome it was. But what you said was think more about the separation from God, the, the the wrath, the outpouring of God's wrath upon Jesus. You know, we go through all sorts of horrible things in this life. Some people, what they have to endure is just unimaginable. But the worst thing that any human being has ever had to endure is light years away from what caused Jesus to cry out, my God, you have forsaken me. Because even though we may suffer from sickness and illness and death, God never forsakes us, never. And yet, he forsook Jesus in that moment, and and that that's an important part of the the message. And and on top of that, and and this is this is kind of the thing is that this moment that we're talking about is something that we could talk about for days. Uh, you know, it's it's it is it is the the center part of our faith. Uh, but that that he bore the wrath of God for us means that suffering now, in a mysterious way that we cannot always explain is not purposeless, and it's not punishment. And while we cannot always give an answer to why one particular Christian suffers or why this person suffers, we know in Christ 
that this is no longer the wrath of God being poured out upon us, but there is some purpose in it. And people can take comfort in that when they look at the cross of Christ. Just a couple of things that also stand out. So, you know, he he dies, Joseph of Arimathea. And we know mixed into the mix here is also Nicodemus. Mm -hmm. Joseph is a very respected member of the council, the Sanhedrin. And I guess we don't really have any information at all on whether Joseph or Nicodemus, for that matter, was present at that illegal meeting that condemned Jesus at night, or even if he was at the one in the morning. But the point is, we can see here that they certainly don't agree with it. We saw Joseph, and probably more clearly Nicodemus, although he's not featured here, we saw Joseph come to faith over the course of the gospel, over the course of Jesus's ministry. And so when Joseph goes and takes him down, he's not doing this as a, as a, as a member of the Sanhedrin who doesn't want the body hanging. He's doing this as a believer in Christ. I, I think that's what we're being told here when it says he's also one who was looking for the coming kingdom. Is that the best way to interpret it, in your opinion? Yeah, and and God has prepared this. Uh, there's a there's an Old Testament verse that said that he's buried among the rich, and Joseph is is rich. This is his tomb, uh, and so you know this comes into the story as well as. All kinds of people are coming to Jesus, are, are, are believing in Jesus. And so we have, we think of the poor, but we also have people that are very influential. And so he comes and he is going to bury Jesus in his tomb as one of his family in that sense. And how the tombs worked is that, uh, and this is a wealthy tomb, so it's hewn out of the rock. There's a, a, a rock to roll closed on it. It's on a slant. It's heavy so that people can't come in and steal the body or steal effects that are buried with the body. Or some people apparently would actually look for a tomb that's still open, steal the body, and put another body in there of someone else that they wanted buried. Because in the climate there, what would happen is the bodies would dry out and you would end up in, in a short amount of time, not like, like a week, but in a, in a relatively short amount of time, bones. Uh, and even the bones would eventually turn to dust. They'd gather them up, put them in what's called an ossuary, which is this jar, set them in the back, and then they'd have this place to lay the next family member body out. We kind of have tombs like that down in New Orleans, uh, where there's family tombs and, uh, tombs and they lay the bodies out in there. But that so that that was the plan. Joseph's family tomb. There's a shelf in there, and uh, he is wealthy. He is respected, and he is willing. I mean, this is something that that we should learn from. He has courage at this point to talk to Pilate. So Pilate, you know, Pilate's not a friend here of the Jews. He's going to go talk to Pilate. He's going to ask for the body. This is a public thing. Everybody's going to know that Joseph did this and showed this respect to Jesus when he was basically killed as a criminal and at the behest of the Sanhedrin. So this is a, this is a courageous thing. And for us, too, you know, confessing Christ out in our culture, sometimes we get, we get hit you know, we get dings against this, but we can look at Joseph and say, here's an example of courage that's willing to stand before the government, willing to stand before the popular leaders of the day, and to say, this Christ is mine, and this Christ I will lay hold of. You talk about the fact that he's being you know, crucified as a criminal, and, and, and not every criminal is crucified. This was typically reserved for ones you wanted to make an example of. 
Yeah, the Sanhedrin. Yeah, the Jews, they were, you know, whereas normally it would be insulting to have these bodies up as they approach this festival. I'm obviously only speculating here, but many of them, just if nothing else out of spite, would probably delighted that Jesus was, who claimed to be the Christ, was there hanging, couldn't even participate in the festival. And so Joseph is not, and if I hear what you're saying correctly, Joseph is not coming back from this event. This was his confirmation. You know, he's not going to be able to go back and say, oh, uh, no, I was just being, no, to do this is to demonstrate faith in, in Jesus. And so... Yeah, Joseph is going to have to answer for this, but that's why it's courageous. That's why Mark describes him as courageous. Mm-hmm. Well, are you ready to get into the next part, or is there anything else? Well, we do have the women. Let's talk about the women real quick. So so Joseph brought the linen shroud. I keep mispronouncing mm-hmm. that. He laid him in a tomb. It's, it's an expensive tomb, and he rolls a stone against the tomb. Now, we hear other ways, other places where the stone was sealed because they were afraid of someone taking the body. The presence of the the stone itself, you've already explained. But in very quick detail, we have 47, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother, mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Uh, how would you interpret that passage? And, and who's Mary, the mother of Joseph or Joseph? Well, they're, you know, they're noting it because this is a, this is a, a quick burial. It's just, we're going to get it done. The guys try to do what they, what they can do. And uh, as we transition into 16, everything that we're reading, I don't mean in the sense of uh, like, this is not terrible, this is horrible, but it's very natural. The body is taken down, it's quickly buried because of the time of year it is, because of this Sabbath, this, the Passover coming up, the women kind of note where the tomb is because they're going to come back. And the next thing that happens, and I, I think this is so relatable, is they have to wait. You know, and I, I've sat by the bedside of those dying. I've sat with families. All pastors do. I'm not special in that. And there's this period of, of, of waiting, and, and you can do nothing, and, and you do the little things that you need to do, and, and, and the death occurs, and, and there's this, just this period, and then it's going to get busy. And we have the exact same thing happening here. They're preparing everything, but there's this period of time. It's for religious reasons that they, they need to do this, uh, that they, it's just waiting. And it must be excruciating, uh, especially for the women. Yeah. And and, and so I was going to say, I was just going to agree with you. You, They're waiting, but I I just wanted to highlight that what you're saying is really nothing that's happened so far is special because it's Jesus. Correct. I I mean, it's courageous that Joseph of Arimathea gets the body, mm -hmm. but beyond that, and it's courageous because yeah. he's a criminal and the Sanhedrin doesn't like him. But but beyond that, this is this is, you know, this is everyday life that's going right. on at this point. Or death, if you prefer to put it sure, that way. Sure, sure. Uh Joseph, uh, you know, there's there's it's it's a form of Joseph, and I suppose they're using that term just so that you don't confuse the different Joseph of Arimathea with this guy. Um uh-huh. uh, there's sense. maybe Maybe it's related to maybe he's related to Jesus. Uh, there's all kinds of theories on on who he is. There's Joseph, the brother of Jesus. There's Joseph, the brother of James. Joseph is a very common name. We're dealing with Mary's a very common name, uh, and so there there are legends, 
you know, in the church on who these people are. And those are interesting to read about. There's nothing wrong with, with you know, what some of the early Christians thought about these things. They're not scripture or anything. We just, we just aren't really sure exactly sometimes how everybody's connected. Mary Magdalene, we know from other scriptures. Uh, and and this this other particular Mary shows up sometimes, but but there's different ways you can answer that question. So I, I'll kind of just leave it as the text says it. It's one of sure. these people that have been involved. So one of the things I will add too, though, just going back half a second, is sure. is victims of crucifixion were at least according to what I've read were often left as just carry on for for vultures and other wild animals to eat. That was part yep. of the punishment; is they didn't receive this. And one part of the, of the things example, that I've always yeah, and one of these things I've always done is try to look at it from, say, Pontius Pilate's point of view uh, to some criticism. You know, people, they just want to malign Pilate, and I understand, and he certainly has guilt about him. But I also see a little bit of, you know, when Pilate tries to wash his hands of it, which isn't the way to handle it, but when Pilate tries to get Jesus off the hook, and, of course, eventually he gives in to just sort of satisfying the crowds. That's his that's his vocation. But but we even see here he he could have told Joseph to take a hike. I, I know whether Joseph went and talked to Pilate directly, who knows? He could have been just one of his emissaries. But the point is that that he, that Jesus was permitted by the Roman government to be put in a tomb, I think says something. Now, what it says, we don't know. It's not in Scripture, as you pointed out, but it's something to think about anyway. Sure. Though Pilate has some com- – Pilate's a complex, complex man. Um, he's got a lot to balance. So I agree with you. I, I think that – one at a the surprised about this uh, that and he wants to make sure that it's true, and you have the danger of a martyr here, you know someone that's popular that gets killed. You got the danger of rumors possibly happening, so we know that the tomb is sealed. But you also have what he's balancing too, is he wants to make this example not just of Jesus but the others that are crucified on a day when Jerusalem is full uh, for the Passover. And so the power of the Roman government is on full display. You know, this is how we handle people that stand up against the Roman government. This is this is a message to the Sanhedrin as well. And the taking down of the bodies is that balance that to have those in the normal way out for carrying on that festival would be highly offensive. And so he does it. He wants to. He wants to show the power of Rome, the punishment of Rome, but also he doesn't want to riot on his hand. And he's got other political problems because there's been riots before, and he's been told off by Caesar. One more of these, and you're out of here. So there, there's a lot right. going on with Pilate. But I, I do agree with you. I think that to allow Jesus to be buried respectfully uh, is, is definitely something that you wouldn't expect. Even if his motivation, which we don't know what it is, was just out right. of spite for the Jews, <laughs> he's still, like right. you said, is a complex guy. Well, the next – this is the end of the chapter. So the next chapter, which is chapter 16, it happens, uh, well, on the third day, right? So we have Sunday morning occurring mm-hmm. on chapter 16. We're still on Good Friday at the end of 15. So we kind of miss Holy Saturday, at least in the Mark narrative. For what it's worth, what's happening on, on Holy Saturday? Jesus is keeping the perfect Sabbath <laughs> rest <laughs> yes, in is. the tomb. He uh, he's not doing any work. And so uh, none of them are. 
they're celebrating the Sabbath, and it must be an awful sad one for them. They're celebrating the, yeah. the Passover, which is linked to that Old uh, Testament festival from when Moses led the people of Is- Israel out of Egypt. Uh, Jesus had already participated in some of those things before his crucifixion. And so they're experiencing that. And there, there's some timing with a great Sabbath and things. You can get really deep into this. But but as normal so- Sabbath practices go, nobody's working. Uh, nobody's yeah. cooking. Nobody's doing anything. And that's why I said this is very relatable. There's this period of time in our sorrow in dealing with those that are dying and those dealing with those that are dying where there's this quiet for a while and then we get busy. Uh, and like I said, it must be eating at them. To, what do you do? You got you got to spend this time doing nothing. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, there's that helplessness. I mean, th- yep. you're helpless anyway when a loved one dies, but not even to be able to go and put the closure on it. Now, this Correct. says something about, though, their faith. And while we should never compare what we would have done to them, I think it's still worth discussing the fact that Jesus made it very clear to his disciples, including the Marys, that he would rise again, and and yet just none of them seem to get it. None of them seem to get it. That's a theme in Mark, especially with the the disciples, the the twelve, that they don't, they just don't get things, and we'll see that pop up in sixteen again. Yeah, well, I'm going to start reading sixteen, but I don't think we'll have time to dip into it before the break. But I'm going to go ahead and begin sure. with verse one. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. All right, so this is the end of verse 8 that I'm stopping at. Yep. And uh, we're going to just contemplate the fact that there, you know, just to give it away, in some earliest manuscripts, this is the end of the whole book. Uh, but we're going to talk with our guest about what that means, what his opinions are, and uh, and what we do have, what does it mean? But all of that's going to happen when we come back. So, folks, don't go anywhere. Listen to these messages. We will see you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, 
go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back, dear listeners. I'm Pastor Phil Boo, your host. This is Thy Strong Word. With me this morning is the Reverend Ryan Fairman. He's the pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Wausau, Wisconsin. And we're talking about the Gospel of Mark. In fact, we're finishing up the Gospel of Mark. Before we head back, though, I just want to remind you that if you have any feedback or comments or questions, you can always reach out to us. You can call us on the phone, 800-730-2727. But if it's more your style to email or text, I'll take that too. You can email pastorboo at gmail.com or send me a message through Facebook. Any of these methods can get your question or comment out on the air. But let's head back to the text. So, brother, uh, before the break, we were just getting into chapter 16. And I think it'd be a good idea just to go ahead at this point to explain that, yeah, we do have some discrepancies. If you were to open up your Bibles at home, you're going to find, most of them, a note that says, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16 verses 9 through 20. And so this has caused us to call um, Mark to have a shorter ending and a longer ending. Uh, brother, I'm going to hand it over to you. Why don't you explain to the folks <laughs> what that's about and, more importantly, why it's not a big deal? <laughs> well, man, this is a—you know, I saw how this chapter came up for me. This is a challenging thing. We're blessed in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, to have experts on this, and you're asking me. Um, Dr. Jim Veltz is our expert on Mark, and he has written extensively on this. And then we actually have what's called a text critic, someone that works with the early manuscripts themselves. These guys are as rare as hen's teeth, Dr. Jeff Cloa, who's at the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. And so these guys are the guys that we should be talking to. But you're talking to but, me, so I'll but do the we best have I you, can. and that's that's, that's yeah, I know. I good. sat under them; they were my professors. But that doesn't mean I'm I'm anywhere as versus um, there. The, yeah, me too. Me you've too. got you've got several manuscripts. This is called text criticism. Uh, this should not undermine anybody's faith. What what it is is trying to look at what is the most. We don't have the original copies of Mark, for example, and so. You know, sometimes an error happens in copying, and you can see that. It's like when you're texting on your phone and you type in a wrong letter or a wrong word pops up because it automatically puts that in, and you can kind of tell that. Or someone looks at your text and says, what was that? Um, they, or they can even fill in the word that, that you did and say, oh, yeah, that's what, that's what they meant. And we have that in text sometimes, too. They're human copied. And for the most part, it affects nothing at all. It, it's just like, oh, yeah, there's a spelling error there. Uh, but there are a few places where there are, there, there are some bigger questions, and this is one of the places. And what's going on is two of our oldest texts, Sinaiticata, I can't say it right, it's going to be Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, I, if I say it right, um, don't have 9 through 20. And a lot of other texts that are almost as old have it. And you have early church fathers writing in the 100s A.D., talking about, quoting from uh, 9 through 20. And then you have other church fathers, other theologians, not that long after, saying that 9 through 20 is not in there. And you have other grammar things going on. For example, if we do end at 8, 
it would have been easier if we ended at seven. Uh, but if we, but the tech, the text that that seemed to end at eight, end at eight, and it ends with a Greek word gar, which means four. We don't put that at the end in in English. Uh, it says afraid four, and and they, you know, that's not how you end something. And yet, uh, Doctor Velt makes some convincing arguments why that's the case, and some other early manuscripts that end that way that are not biblical manuscripts. So there's there's a jumble of things going on. With, with the ending of Mark. And Mark 16, 9 through 20 doesn't, doesn't add much of anything that we don't find already in the other Gospels. And so even if it was left off, we're not losing anything. This text critic stuff should not worry you. This is, this is the scholars just trying to do what they can to make sure we have the best biblical text. And let me, let me explain how you can regard this. This is the way I do it. Uh, and this is not Dr. Veltz or Dr. Clore or anyone else. This is just me, so take it with a grain of salt. You know, we've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and these are important, like, base-level scriptures. And then we have, like, the book of Jude, which is scripture. But if for some reason we lost the book of Jude, well, you know, we got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are base things. Or we have Romans, or we have Galatians, or we have 1 Corinthians. So if we lost Third John... Well, okay. In other words, there are scriptures that are based, that you build off of, that are like, when you build a house, there is the ground floor level, there's the basement, there's the concrete, there's that stuff. And then you have the parts that you put on on the walls or the siding or the roof. You don't want to put the roof on the bottom, just like you don't want to put the foundation on the top. And so Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you know, Romans, these are base things. Jude is kind of like the roof or the siding. They're extra things that add on. They're all scripture, but they're not base things. And so we don't like create theology out of Jude that we don't find in the, that's, we don't find in the base stuff. We have to have the base stuff. In the same way too, uh, Mark 16, 9 through 20, you can consider as as not a base thing, but as something that can go on on the top and on the roof. And so if we lost 16, 9 through 20, we haven't lost a foundation of anything here. Uh, and so I think I think that's a good way to look at it, that it's that if you want to regard it as scripture, great, because there's other places that already say much of the same things, except one thing, which we'll probably get to hopefully. Uh, and, and, and if you want to say it's, it's it's got a questionable thing. Well, fine. Then then uh, we let's not found any doctrines off of it. Let's find them in other places. And when you get to heaven someday, and and Jesus says, yeah, that was the real part of it. You could say, oh well, I guess I didn't regard it as highly as I should have. Or if he says, no, nope, that wasn't really part of it. You said, oh well, I got the stuff was found in other parts of the gospel, so we're good. <laughs> I don't know, Pastor Booth. That's a good explanation. But that's, I that's think my you've attempt. done a, an excellent job because I've also had doctors Kaloa and Veltz, and uh, if I'd had Veltz on, we'd we'd be talking about it for you know about ten or eleven weeks. Gosh, he's written so. volumes on it. Yep, yep. <laughs> so yeah, no, brilliant man, and uh, both of them. But yeah, no, I, I think you've done an excellent job, better than I would have done in explaining this. But I do have one question, and sure. uh, this is what I've asked: What do you think? Do you find that the the longer ending of Mark, you think that's, and I know it's just your thoughts, but you think that's part of the original autographs? Because although I agree with you wholeheartedly in your explanation in terms of finding these doctrines elsewhere, there are a couple of things which we're getting ready to discuss that are a little hard, hard teachings to understand. And so... In See, some you're ways, making me take helpful. a stand, and I, I don't want to get in trouble yeah. with my professors. No, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, would, I would say that I... And, and I'm going to have to explain what I say next, too. 
I would say that's that nine through twenty thing. for me is anti-legomena. Okay, sure. Uh, so the explanation that I gave for you folks out there is there's fancy words for how I went about that explanation, homologomena and anti-legomena. There are scripture texts that in the in the ancient church were spoken against, but they're still in the Bible. Uh, Hebrews is an example, Revelation is an example, and then there are scriptures that were never spoken against, John, the, the Gospel of John. And so we never found doctrine off the scriptures that were spoken against, but we can find doctrine in them that's supported by others. And so just to make you feel all better, verses 1 through 8, everybody believes right. is scripture. Verses 9 through 20 is open to opinion on, on whether you believe it or not. I, I tend toward the scripture side. This is against what I was taught in some ways, mm -hmm. but that that's simply because I, I, I like tradition. Uh, and so the tradition of the church uh, in many places have, have held that as scripture. And then we have a Mark 16, 16 issue with the catechism to talk about. But yeah. on the other yeah. hand, if you don't believe this is, the, this is a, a legitimate part, everything we're gonna find here is everywhere else anyway. So it could well, be a way start, that they just rounded off the story. Go well, ahead. Let's start with then the first eight verses, because one sure. of the reasons why, um, and I've asked you to take a stand, so I should too. I, I certainly agree. I mean, obviously it's antilogomena, um, uh, homologomena, by the way, which is really fun to say, or even prologomena. Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I would hold that it's probably something that was added later, because as we're going to hear, obviously mm -hmm. very shortly after, not too much later. But I, because I think it rounds out the story. I'm pretty sure that Mark was wanting to end on a particular note. It, it's consistent with his conciseness, um, and the fact that I don't necessarily hold that everybody else is just taking Mark and expanding on it, like some scholars hold. So I, mm -hmm. I see that somebody's just added this because it finishes up the story. But let's look at the first eight verses, and we'll let the people come to their own conclusion. Sure. So when the Sabbath was passed, it's it's Sunday morning. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Salome, there's other women there too. They bring some spices. They bought them and they bring them. What are they going to do with Jesus' body? Let's just start there. They're going to prepare it for burial. They're going to make it smell nice. They're going to treat it with honor uh, as they do, uh, as their custom. We have our ways of treating the body respectfully and preparing it for burial as well. And so that, that that's what they're going to do. It, it's there's there's a good amount of spices they bring. There's there's what they you know they, they this is this is the burial custom of the time, and 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 they're doing it really nicely. So they get there and they're afraid that they're not going to be able to get in because of that big stone that covers the door, and yet it's rolled away. They go in and we get a discrepancy is not the right word, but we get a little different view in Mark than we do elsewhere. In this event, we're only told about the young man sitting on the right side dressed in a white robe. Uh, mm -hmm. They see this this angel. Uh, Luke is a little different. John's a little different. Why? Well, one of the, this is one of the uh, evidences that the Gospels are good accounts because they're eyewitness accounts, and you don't want your eyewitness accounts to be word for word. Uh, that would be called collusion. And so you have, everybody's running around. It's a crazy day. As you can see, we're going to see the reaction in a minute. And everybody is basically recounting what they remember. And frankly, when you have eyewitnesses, 
why you want multiple eyewitnesses is because not everybody picks up all the details. None of us do. And we focus on one thing or another, and this is what they see. And so the accounts don't contradict each other, especially sometimes they'll say, well, there's one angel or two angels. It's just what people noticed at that time. Uh, and so we have Mark's account here, uh, which might be Peter's account, but regardless, we have these this this witness of, of what what is happening. So it's not different in the sense of it contradicts anything. It's just different in the sense of one person giving what they experienced on that particular very emotionally fraught day. Mm-hmm. Right, absolutely. And when I was studying criminal justice, which is my first degree, we talked oh, about good. this. Well, then the, we talked about this problem. Well, I'm just saying we talked about this problem with eyewitnessing all the time. Um, that eyewitnesses are notoriously unreliable too, though. Now, with that said, the unreliability comes from things like stress and all the action and that sort of thing. But we don't have to worry about the reliability of this because these witness accounts are being guided by the Holy Spirit. So it does, tends to have a little bit of both natures to it. That is, we see little differences in emphasis, either for didactic or teaching reasons, or just simply because that's not what he wants to talk about. I mean, if, if you were hearing Peter describe this to Mark, Mark might have said, well, I thought there were two there. And Peter's kind of like, well, that's not the point. <laughs> right. And, and, and in you fact, know, it, go ahead. they're all different. The, what you said is, is is very much right. I mean, this is, this is inspired by the Spirit. We have both sides of things going on, the human equation and, and, and the God equation. But it does, when you, and you have to correct me on this because you're the expert in this, you do want your witnesses to have similar stories. That is, they, they might see, they might have described different details, but the car accident happened, <laughs> you know, and they all saw the car accident happen. And we all have, there's something, the tomb is open, there's angels flitting about, there's all these things going on, and, and the stories are remarkably similar, and yet not so similar that you would call into question that they're just copying. Yeah, the issue with witnesses isn't so much that the uh, people are unreliable in what they saw, but they often have to be coached into how to describe what they saw. And there's always a careful balance in the real world of not leading your witness to say something that you want them to say. But at the same time, giving them the tools to be able to express it, and I guess that's how I've always seen it. The that's Holy a, that's Spirit a neat is insight. Uh, because yeah, the that's, Holy Spirit I mean, is that's giving them what tools. The Spirit is doing is is helping them explain what they what they experienced. Right. And we haven't talked about Peter being behind this for quite a few episodes, um, but that's that's always been my opinion too. But verse seven kind of I think belies that a little bit. Verse seven says, "But go and yeah. tell his disciples and Peter that he and is Peter, going yeah. before you to Galilee." For me, that's a little hint that Peter is. Is has his experience in mind here, but there you will see him just as he told you. So there's still this aspect of the angel reminding them, none of this should be news to you. He told you this was going to happen. But then if we take verse eight, and you're absolutely right, if it ended at verse seven, I don't think anybody would have ever felt the need to add anything else Correct. if that is indeed what happened. Because verse eight, though, says, and they went out, they fled from the tomb, they were trembling, Astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, I guess the problem we run into is we know they went and told other people. So for it to say they said nothing to anyone because of fear, I think that's fair. It certainly is true they were afraid, but we're going to have to reconcile this by looking at Scripture to interpret Scripture because 
we have a little bit of a conflict here on the surface. Yeah, and there's some interesting stuff going on in the Greek. Uh, and I get this from from Velt. You know, afraid there is not simply fear, which it is, but it but in Mark, that represents something divine has occurred. When divine things occur, people have that 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 fear, and so you know, there's there's a signifier there that's been throughout the whole book that something that, that up earlier when they said that they were alarmed uh, that they were they were you know later trembling and astonished these are all different words the the, the afraid word there is is one that's that's used in the sense of the divine divine miracle the transfiguration all these kind of things and so that 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 can signify to us you know there's there's good arguments for this end i'll admit my my position's weaker um, the four, you have to remind me, I didn't look at this, but I, I, I thought four is how the book begins as well, or some, there's some connection to drive us back to the beginning. But the, uh, I imagine this, that uh, Mark is recording what Peter says. This is just my own imagination. And, and Peter is doing a series of sermons on this, and this is what he does and goes around, and he, and, he's, and he tells the story this way. Go and tell the disciples, and Peter, he's going to you. They fled from the two, and they said nothing, they're afraid. And then Peter stops and looks out and says, I'm that Peter, and I'm telling you this story. You know, that there, there's this right. dramatic, dramatic end to it. Um, and there is actually a, did you know there's a third ending? <laughs> Just to make things more confusing. <laughs> I, uh, I did we, actually. In fact, there are um, dozens of different uh, manuscripts that actually add anywhere from two to like 15 verses. So right. there, yeah, are, there are a couple let, out Let there. me read you this one verse that sometimes Please. they add. Uh, they returned. They reported briefly to Peter and those with him that they had what they had been told. And after this, Jesus sent uh, them out uh, from east to west, the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. That's also kind of a nice wrap up. And I'm not saying that's actually part of the text, but it's. But I could see that in you know again how Peter would Peter be ending this is like and they told me, and we went out and here we are now. So so it. Ending at eight is is perfectly okay, and like I said, everybody agrees up to eight that we're dealing with inspired words of God. Well, let's keep on going because sure, absolutely, most of it I do believe agrees with the rest of Scripture. But we well, we got to get to the snakes thing. See, I'm from the south, so that's yeah, I know be, you want to get to that. It's, yeah, it's got to be addressed. So let's keep All on right. going with sure. verse nine. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he Jesus appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. Uh, verse 12. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking in the country, into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. And afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. All right, so I'm going to stop right there at the end of 14. So that's okay. all perfectly consistent with the rest of Scripture, easy to find elsewhere. Sure, 9 through 11 is 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 like John 20. You know, we got Luke's story of the Emmaus disciples in 12 through 13 going on. So, I mean, it, these are, like I said, it is a very nice wrap-up. If someone's adding this on, they're, you know, they're just throwing the other stuff in here <laughs> to, to tell the rest of the story. Right. Uh, but we have that other places. Right. And then they add, of course, the Great Commission coming next in 15. So, and he said sure. to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. 
but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. Verse 19. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. And that's the end of the book. So these words of Jesus in red between 15 and yeah. 18, um, that and a one is incident in Acts, I know entire Christian denominations are founded upon. <laughs> Correct. So well, how do we it. understand these? Well, 14 is John 20 uh, coming out of there. 15, 16 is Matthew 20. 28 with the Great Commission. And I would point out two interesting things in there that um, they're rebuked, Jesus rebukes them for unbelief and hardness of heart, and we still deal, deal with that today. Unbelief is unbelief. Hardness of heart is the stubborn refusal, uh, because heart is the seed of reason for the for the ancient people. It's just, it's just continue, you see the stuff before you, and you're just pushing against God. And then uh, he goes, go out and proclaim the gospel to whole, the whole creation, which I just like that because it's the word there is everything that's created. So St. Francis goes and preaches to the birds. I'm not saying we should do that, but <laughs> it's just nice that creation's in there. Anyway. Absolutely. Uh, 16, Luther puts in the small catechism as uh, uh, one of the sections on baptism, the second one about it, you know, what does baptism do? But just so you know, we don't have to have 1616. We can go to a whole bunch of other places, like 1 Peter 3, baptism now saves you, Acts 238, be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. So that, that's not a problem for us with the catechism. Uh, we can find other verses that support that. Uh, but let's go on with the, I know the part, 17 you want. All right. So <laughs> the signs, you know, let's, let's assume for the sake of argument, someone's adding this later. And so these all things happen in Acts. Pentecost, you have in Acts chapter 2, they're, they're speaking in tongues. You have a demon cast out in Acts 16. You have uh, a snake come out and bite Paul in Acts 28, and he shakes it off and survives. And you have, uh, again, in Acts 28, you have uh, someone healed. The only one that doesn't pop up in the scriptures is the drinking poison. And if we have time, I can tell you a story on that. Uh, oh, from the early church, but but the, but the point here is, as we talked earlier, that because this section of scripture has people that have spoken against it in the early church, it is not a section of scripture that we should found any doctrines off of that we don't find other places. And in the case of the handling of snakes. Yeah, you have that happen to Paul as a description of what happened, but it's not necessarily something that should accompany all Christians of all times. I have no problem with God doing miracles now, but our role is to speak the gospel, seek the gospel, and not worry about that. Let God do what he's going to do with that. You want to pray for the sick that they get healed? Fine. If they get healed, perfectly fine. Fantastic. Praise God. But it's more important that they know the gospel so that on the day of resurrection, they mm -hmm. will see Christ and they will see their Lord. And so all these things are interesting. We have examples of scripture for most of them happening, but they're not the main focus here. Uh, it, it is just a description of what is going on as the church 
expands. And maybe that's not a satisfying answer to some of the listeners, but sure. but I think that we we have to be careful in this section of Scripture of building anything. This is not base material here. Base meaning the bottom material of a, a building. This this is this is more the the top material. We 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 just have to be careful. I want to add one more verse. After the sure. seventy two return, Jesus says to them. I saw Satan fall like lightning. Oh, by the way, this is Luke chapter 10. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. So in addition to that incident in Acts where Paul shakes off the snake, we have that too. But what you're, yeah, the point but you're we know making— Yeah, but we know who the serpent is that we tread on, and that's a theme that's in Scripture. <laughs> and that's right. Satan— so, so that's and that's the point I want to make. So, so we see these things where you can go from scripture eisegetically and go, okay, I need to find this, I need to find this, and I see a scribe doing that, I, and, I, and I actually see it done in the most greatest of intentions. That is, I want to bring in that Jesus is with us. I want to know, you know, people want to know what that looks like on the ground, and he brings up some very concrete things. I guess the problem I have is that even if these were inspired by the Holy Spirit, for us to know that if we were to pick up a serpent or drink a deadly poison, they won't hurt us for some reason, there still remains the putting the Lord to the test. Correct. To then you maybe don't have cre- God. Right. To create a divine service around where we pick up serpents and drink poison doesn't really make a lot of sense. That seems more like you're putting the Lord to the test. So that's another criticism I would know. And, and we got more important word. stuff to do, yeah. like proclaim the gospel. Well, we do uh, have so, about three, four minutes if you want to try right. to fit in a story. Sure. So St. John, all the apostles have little symbols for them, and St. John's symbol is a cup with a snake, I believe. But there's a story from the early church that there was this uh, pagan priest named uh, Aristodemus, and he said, you know what? I'll convert to Christianity if you drink this full cup of poison, St. John. And just to prove that it was poisonous, he grabbed two prisoners, let them drink it, and they died. And John's like, no problem. So he, he drinks the cup. John doesn't die. And Aristodemus is like, um... If you can raise these guys back to life, then oh. I will convert. <laughs> and so John actually takes off his cloak, gives it to Aristodemus, and says, you go as my apostle, lay the cloak on them, and say, uh, John, the apostle of Jesus Christ, is sending you, and these men will live. And sure enough, they live, and apparently Aristodemus converts. And so there is, there is, and there's a few other early church stories of other folks doing this. We don't know if that happened or not. It's an interesting story. Um, but that's that's as close as we can get to something about drinking deadly poison. There's nothing that appears in in scripture, right? But even if that you know was just a legend, which it probably sounds like it could very well be embellished. Be. The point is they're discussing these concepts in mm-hmm. the early church, uh, so you know that does testify to its presence in the Bible. I, you know, even if this were uh, not under dispute at all, I think you know I still would push the point that we're not to put the Lord to the test. This is more about how God is being able to work, or Jesus specifically in this case, is able to work these amazing things for those who do his will. And I think that's the point that's trying to be made here. I yeah, like the shorter the- ending of Mark, though. I just want to emphasize only because it ends with this idea of astonishment and fear seizing them. And while we know from the rest of Scripture that they do go on and fulfill what the angel told them to do and what Jesus wants them to do, it's a testimony to their fear and I think that's something we can really, uh, you know, associate ourselves with. We can really uh, f- relate to. 
Yeah, and in and, and the important words here at the end of the day, if we take the longer ending, is go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole of creation. And of course, uh, in one through eight, the important words when it comes down to it is you seek Jesus of Nazareth who is crucified, he is risen, he is not here. I mean, that that is what it is. And that's, you know, our answer when we started in 15 of his death, and now he's alive. Jesus is alive, and I couldn't think of any better words to end our study of Mark with. And so I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Ryan Fairman. He's the pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Wausau, Wisconsin. You're also a, a theology instructor at a high school there, right? Yes, I, I've spent several years teaching uh, theology and other things at a Lutheran high school. Excellent. Wonderful. Well, thanks, Pastor. It's always great to have you on the show. I look forward to having you back again. I look forward to being back. Thank you. All right, folks, tomorrow begins a brand new study for us. We're turning back time, heading into the prophecy of Micah. At just a, you know, a handful of chapters long, Micah's among the so-called minor prophets, but through him, God calls his people to repent of selfishness and injustice, to walk humili- in humility before him. Those are things we can learn to do today. And Micah foretells the coming exile at the hands of the Assyrians. But curiously, this is also the text in which we learn that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. So join us tomorrow as we open up Micah chapter 1. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word. 